travel towards Wexford, you're travelling towards the sea. To your left, as you near the town, are the marshlands, salty home of wild goose and curlew. And when you cross the Slaney and drive along the Redmond Road, you're on land which was won from the marsh only a hundred years ago. And here you may hear a welcome from the chimes of the Church of the Immaculate Conception, the joy bells of Wexford. The town of Wexford is a subtle place. Its shape and size are not impressive. It's small for its population. Its narrow rambling streets would break any town planner's heart. But it has a quality of familiar use, of being lived in. Like a very old house, mellow and casual through long and busy occupation. There's no local museum in Wexford. There's hardly any need for one. For here, tradition isn't something you study. You're aware of it. The County Hall of Wexford, which houses the library, the courthouse, and various administrative offices, was formerly Wexford Jail. From the east window of his office, which was once the governor's room, the county manager, Tomaso Shinoid, showed us one of Wexford's earliest monuments, the tower of the Abbey of Selskar, St. Sepulchre. The Augustinians came there in the 13th century, a hundred years before that, Henry II had done penance there for the murder of Thomas a Becket. The first building was probably done by the Danes, who founded their colony of Wexford on the site of an early Celtic settlement. Mr. Oceanoid showed us traces of the old town wall as it led from Selskar. You'll see too that the whole town of Wexford extends from Selskar, which was the west gate of the town. And of which the original arch still remains, on towards Rosslair and towards Rosslair Harbour, a modern gateway to the country. Wexford itself, of course, was an ancient gateway to Ireland. The Slaney is named from one of the sons of Milesius, and there is no doubt but that many invaders before the Danes entered Ireland through this gateway. From other windows we saw the spires of Wexford's twin churches and running parallel with Main Street, St John Street, part of the old Irish town. The little gardens which run down from the houses on this street are famous from their early potatoes. Through this window we see the infirmary. This was the second infirmary uh, founded in Ireland. The first was at Armagh. This infirmary here was founded in May 1769 and continued up to the time of the amalgamation of the unions to serve as a county infirmary for Wexford. And through our last window here, we look out on the Sparwell Road, a road which was famous and popular all through the 18th century when county families and strangers from other counties came to take the waters on this road. And above it still, just where those Trees, peep up, Cromwell had his camp, his first camp, when he came to attack Wexford in 1649. 
Yes, as Mr. Oshinoid told us, we meet history in Wexford at every street corner. We went up the narrow main street to our hotel. It's been a hotel for at least 200 years, except for part of it, once a dwelling house and the birthplace of a certain Miss Elgie. She was to become Speranza of the nation and the mother of Oscar Wilde. From the hotel we went to see a very gracious lady, Mrs. O'Brien, whose memories of Wexford go back a long way, but who can still sing very sweetly a ballad like Carrick River. Tis often in those bygone days With my schoolmates I did roam Through the lonely woods of Carrick Where the woodcock makes his home As I rode along the sweet Bird songs were ringing through the skies o'er the lonely woods of Tariq, where ninety-eight men lie. Mention of the ninety-eight men led Mrs. O'Brien to bring us up to the bull ring to see Shepherd's fine statue of the pikeman which recalls some of Wexford's proudest memories. The bullring itself has many associations since the time when bulls were baited here to celebrate mayoral elections. Later it became a marketplace, as Mrs. O'Brien recalls. Facing us was the piazza. Doesn't that give you a thought of Spain? Well, perhaps it was meant to be like that, because there were about six arches with iron gates in between and inside there were the stone stalls the stone stalls on which the market women showed their wares I remember on Thursday evenings being down there charmed to see the fish coming in from the Slaney at that time Fish was very plentiful and very large. Why you get immense fish for five pence or seven pence that would do a large family. Mrs. O'Brien went on to describe the tholsel overhead. Then our only place of public meetings, barring the... the um, the, the assembly rooms. But in this tulsa, it was a long, narrow slip of a room. And at the end, the mayor of the town and his corporation, they would sit there to hold their meetings. And then the mayor's court would be held there, I think every other week, where he would try cases, small cases. Well, of course, on the iron gates, on the iron gates of the market piazza downstairs, it was on those spikes that they used to put the heads of the, of the so-called rebels in 98.
from the Bullering through the Corn Market and then up Rose Street to the Franciscan Friary. The Friars Manor has been in Wexford for 700 years, as Father Paul told us. I think that during those seven centuries, Wexford managed to imprint something of its own character on the Friary. I mean, a special awareness of the past. Anything at all will do as an example. The desk which serves me for writing. It bears the date 1773. And that immediately makes me think of all the other friars who used this desk before me. Wexford's famous Father Patrick Kavner used it when writing his history of the insurrection of 1798. And he died just a few feet away from it. Death took him very gently in his prayers. The friars found him beside his bed, still on his knees. Then the old oil paintings in the friary, they do the same. They keep reminding you of the past. The lovely Madonna and child in the community room, that somehow found its way here from Spain of the 17th century. Or the dark brown, almost black portrait which hangs in the refectory with its inscription, Father Joachim Hayes OFM, born North Main Street, Wexford, the 20th of January, 1788 taught classical school Wexford, 1814. Delegated the Catholics of Ireland at the Holy See against the British Veto Movement, the 25th of October, 1815, and died of tuberculosis, Rue de Bourne, Paris, the 24th of January, 1824. Father Paul referred to further links with tradition in the Friary Library. Old books, a letter, a note on a flyleaf. Or let's leave the library and go outside the Friary. This open space in front of the Friary, it covers an old cemetery, the ancient cemetery of the Knights Hospitallers of St. John, so that here beneath our feet lie the graves of 12th century Normans who fought on the Crusades in Palestine. And that great chestnut tree there in the railed-off lawn was planted by an uncle of the famous John Redmond, of course, Wexford values it for more than that, because according to local tradition, it marks the spot where three friars are buried, three of the seven friars who were killed here in Wexford by Cromwell in 1649. There are many other local traditions about the friary, stories of secret passages and ghosts, but Father Paul says that he hasn't seen any of them so far. go from the friary round by Back Street to High Street, you come to another home of tradition of a different kind, Wexford's Theatre Royal, which was opened in 1832 and which during the 19th century garrison days was visited by all the popular operatic and dramatic companies on tour in the country. And whatever about opera, of which we'll hear more in a moment, there are still plays to be seen there. Lord Longford's company was playing during our visit. A school for scandal. Tell me, I beseech you, needs there a school this modish art to teach you? No need of lessons now, the knowing think. We might as well be taught to eat and drink. Caused by a dearth of scandal, should the vapours distress our fair ones, let them read the papers. Their powerful mixture such disorders hit. Crave what you will, 
there's quantum sufficit. Is our young Bard so young to think that he can stop the full springtide of calumny? Knows he the world so little and its trade? Alas, the devil sooner raised than laid. So swift, so strong, the monster there's no gagging. Cut scandal's head off, still the tongue is wagging. Proud of your smiles, once lavishly bestowed, again our young Don Quixote takes the road. To show his gratitude, he draws his pen and braves this hydra scandal in his den. For your applause, he will all perils through. He'll fight, that's right. A cavalier true, tell every drop of blood, that's ink, is spilt for you. It's interesting to recall that the young dung Quixot, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, once stood for Parliament in Wexford. That election campaign, like many others, suffered the full spring tide of calumny and resulted in a duel where more than ink was spilt. Our recording of the prologue to the School for Scandal, spoken by Godfrey Quigley, was made on the 8th of February. And on the 8th of February, 1819, the School for Scandal was played in Wexford by a local amateur group known as the Corps Dramatique. That wasn't in the Theatre Royal, of course, but in an older playhouse in the Corn Market. There is no local amateur company in Wexford just now, but we were able to record an impression of another kind of dramatic tradition still very much alive. The Wexford Mummers are lineal descendants of the old morality players of the Middle Ages, although the rhymes, as they call them, most popular nowadays, are of much later origin and significance. Hope you will, good order keep, while each recite is past, for our pure intent is merriment and pleasure to impart. Of music too, we have galore, by artist proven skill. Here comes Patrick Sarsfield instead of Column Kill. Sarsfield comes forward and tells the story of his fight and how when all was lost at Limerick, he decided to offer his sword to France. Two flags now floated in the breeze. High o'er Limerick town, of which to join we have our choice, the flu de or crown. To France's standard, I give the aid, this sword of mine unstained, if further use, for it was not, still in air and I remained. Stay, Sarsfield, stay, I must insist, for the green flag floated there, which o'er hand and long on Irish hills, kept waving proud and fair. We did advise, we begged of you, not sail to a foreign land, while wailing women cried return, we'll make another stand. With troops the bravest ever lived, you sailed to France away, and Ern left the hopeless wreck to Saxon lost the prey. You wrong me, valiant captain, yet what you say is true, could what I did but be undone, I swear I would undo. I'd break that treaty twenty times, I deem it no disgrace, for honour please you'll bear in mind becomes a noble race. I've done, so all I ask is you'll forgive, and I ask each Celtic clan to remember Larden's bloody field, young Sarsfield is the man. Sarsfield calls on Father John Murphy to tell how in later years he fought, although he was a man of peace. Although my calling was of peace, how could I stand and see the fertile plains of Wexford waste by a treacherous soldiery? Ah, yes, Father. But why did you advise each man give up his Ah, fight? yes, I did. But I told them forge another should the hour come to strike. 
who oft brave youth through imprudence lost their country's liberty. And when Father John Murphy has finished, he calls on the captain to end the whole show. So now, brave boys, fall into line. To you it is no trouble. And we call upon our fiddler to oblige us with a double. Tom Harper, playing the Wexford hornpipe on the fiddle, reminds us of yet another kind of tradition still alive in this town of many races. Kevin O'Mahony's accordion, too, is heard at Caleha, which are popular in the town which, until very recently, had one of the most successful annual fashioner in the country. But as Dr. Tom Walsh agreed with us, there isn't very much music-making in Wexford, apart from the male voice choir, well known to radio listeners, and some musical comedy work. But there may be big things coming. Probably the most important musician we have ever had living in Wexford, a thing I point I think which not, is not very generally known, is where William Michael Balfe. He actually came from Dublin to here at a very early age and had his first music lessons here. They were given to him by a bandmaster in the militia band here, a man called Meadows. And incidentally, it's rather interesting to learn, as I think it was in one of Ogle's journals I read, that at that time in Wexford, the militia band was very, very good. About lived for about something like two or three years here, I think, and during that time, he incidentally composed his first music here, a small piece of palacca, which was played by the band. Now, apropos of all this, last November, we tried to form an opera study circle here. And my good friend, Mr. Compton McKenzie, came and gave us an inaugural address. Now, the opera circle has gone on quite well since, but it is really just a means to an artistic end. But what we have in mind is the formation of a musical festival, which we hope, it's very much in the air at the moment, but we hope that by next, say, October or November, of the musical festivals which are now so popular in England. Now, the reason therefore, of this festival will be the revival of some of the lesser-known operas and now-forgotten operas of Bath, such as the Maid of Artois, uh, the Siege of Rochelle, the Rose of Castile. I am a simple muleteer, not too particular to rule. I treat the world both far and near as roughly as I treat my mule as the military barracks, which was the centre of the garrison life which Balfe knew so well, was built in the early 18th century. To make place for it, the historic castle of Wexford was destroyed, an act of vandalism in the words of Dr. Haddon, who told us something about the castle. It was built by Henry II to replace the old Danish stockade. For 400 years it was the administrative centre of the county. In the identical castle at Carlow, the exchequer was on the ground floor of one of the turrets 
and above it, on the upper floors, was the treasury where the money and the records were kept. Attached to the castle was a hall with the shingle roof, doubtless for conferences, inquisitions and courts, and several straw-thatched out uh, offices. On the other hand, the constable of the castle did not govern the town. The only part the town had in the castle uh, was its statutory duty to keep it supplied with candles and firewood. When the castle was built, it was impregnable, but gunpowder gun uh, and siege artillery changed all that. When Cromwell came in 1649, his military genius saw instantly that the castle was the key to the situation. It was vulnerable to his heavy guns. Its garrison was a mere handful of a hundred men, and they could not be reinforced uh, from the, within the town. And once it was in his hands, it commanded, as it was meant to command, the walls of the town. He mounted his siege guns uh, on the Tarpeian rock only 500 yards away. In a short morning's bombardment, he breached the castle walls, and all the rest followed with the inevitability of the last moves of a check base at chess. Lawrence Radford and John Sinnott, two Wexford builders, brought us to see some examples of Elizabethan and Georgian building and talked to us about old Wexford crafts and craftsmen. I remember the first morning I went to work in October 1897. Yes. The first thing the boss asked me to do, Johnny said he go up to Pat Hamilton in Corn Market and get some fourpenny nails and bring them down to see the houses mm -hmm. in uh, Emma Place. He was yes. building houses there that time. Oh, you know I, that know the house. yes. I know the yes. house. I know the house. Building for the corporation. Yes. And of course, you could have been sent at that time for the locks to the locksmith also. Oh, yes. Did you know the Frenchies? Johnny well. French and Mick. And Mick. And the father. Well, I, didn't I didn't know the father, but... I, I didn't know the, the father either, but yeah. I knew the, knew Mick and Johnny well. But they made locks that they their own key would only open, not like the yes. the present day stuff that's turned out. Yes, that you can open yes. with a hairpin. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I don't think all locks made nowadays are that easy to open. At any rate, uh, even if there aren't any nail makers and locksmiths left, there are still craftsmen in Wexford, as Ray Corish, chairman of the Chamber of Commerce, points out. Although most of the old handicrafts are dead, the traditions of Wexford craftsmanship are still very much alive. Our main industries are our iron foundries. They manufacture all types of agricultural machinery and motor springs. They provide employment to over a thousand men. We have, of course, other industries, malting, furniture, mineral waters, and so on. Apart from industry, Wexford is a very good trading town. It serves a large and prosperous farming area. We have monthly cattle markets here, or fairs, and they attract many buyers from all over Ireland, and of course, all our local farmers come to Wexford town on the day of the fair. The port of Wexford, it isn't as good as it used to be, but Wexford sailors earned quite a reputation for themselves in days gone by, and have always played an important part 
in the commercial life of the town. After a day and a half, sure we'd been at sea. Sure early next morning we got wakes for bed. We let go the anchors and all went below for to have a good sleep for we wanted it so we should Yes, the port of Wexford, her ships and her sailors. Men like Captain Paddy Cogley, who mitched from school to go to sea. And I came down on the quay. I met a captain that knew me. And this captain wanted to know what I was doing in town. So I told him I was having a look around. So he says, you're not looking a ship. So I thought it was a very good opportunity for me for to get to the school and go in this one with good him. En- good enough, Paddy. And I said, uh, I was, uh, I, I uh, go with him. And he said, all right, to be at uh, Custom House in Ann Street at 11 o'clock for the sign articles. Is good the enough. same custom? What ship was that? The Antelope. Wasn't she a Wexford built ship? Yes, she was built on the dockyard. The old dockyard. Yeah. One of the last ships was built on the dockyard. One of the last ships, she was the last ship that was built yeah, on it. the last ship was built on the dockyard. Sailors and fishermen, we talked to John and Lawrence Lett. And as they pointed out to us, the fisherman's trade isn't an easy one. Well, a young fellow present needs to be well educated. He would want to be trained um, technically uh, in the engine fittings. And uh, then he'd want to have a good experience of the making and mending of trawls and the fitting out of all his gear. And here on the friendly quayside, we must leave Wexford. Here indeed we could stay much longer listening to many more stories of the old days and a few salty remarks about the present and the future. I hope we will come back to hear them, but in the meantime, let Podrick Fallon, who sees the town and the quay and the bay with a poet's eye, fix that vision in our mind. To me, Wexford means the sea and the things that go with the sea, ships and the men that man them, the sailboat and the fishermen, and above all, the quays where men gather under my window and talk about the sea when the cranes are going and groaning with coal and grain and lorries are booming about all over the place. I'm not sentimental about the sea at all. I, I regard it as, as the enormous and uncontrollable element it is. But I'm not happy unless I have some contact with it. And I have just the contact here that I need. A job that takes me among sailor folk, men with a history of sea craft that that goes back some hundreds of years. I've no great interest in the intellectual life of any place, perhaps because I have enough of that kind of thing when I, when I turn inward to face a poem. So the picture I carry of this old town is, well, I suppose, some kind of picture of myself. Indeed, I seem to have been born with a picture of Wexford in my mind, for certainly I was looking for it until I found it. So if it is a kind of poetry to me, It's also the kind of poetry a man lives rather than writes. An old suit of clothes or or a sort of traditional costume in which 
in which a man is himself and still other than himself, a man who reflects a community of experience. And maybe that's what draws me to this town. It makes me at times feel more than life-size.